Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. And I'm Jean Meserve. Great to have you with us. Have to say, I have done a lot of interviews over the years, but this one has to be one of my favorites. Who are you? So Jean, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm the original. Yes, James Bond. And you thought he was just a figment of Ian Fleming's imagination. There is more to it. Stay tuned. I will explain later. Speaking of spies in the Cold War, this week I talked with Audra Wolf, who is a recognized expert in the role of science in the Cold War. She's the author of two books, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science, and Competing with the Soviets, Science, Technology, and the State in Cold War America. That was a time when science held a special place in maintaining and projecting state power. This week, I asked her whether the American advances in coronavirus vaccines were playing a role in the so-called psychological warfare or soft power competition between the U.S., Russia, and China. Audra Wolf, welcome to Spy Talk. In your book, Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science, you describe something called Project Troy, how scientists help refine Cold War psychological warfare. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the United States was trying to figure out how you could go about um, carrying out psychological warfare campaigns uh, during a time that was officially not war. Uh, Because both the United States and the Soviet Union had atomic weapons, they wanted to um, avoid the possibility of a hot conflict. Um, And so both countries were very invested in thinking about um, how to use propaganda, uh, paramilitary operations, various kinds of psychological warfare, economic warfare, to change world opinion, uh, particularly in communist nations. And um, scientists seem to have been an afterthought in the psychological warfare uh, competition between the USSR and the US, right? A little bit. It's interesting that the whole reason they were involved in Project Troy was that the Soviet Union had started uh, jamming uh, the United States radio towers. Um, so scientists were first brought into uh, this, this large-scale study to think about psychological warfare really as scientists to solve a technological problem. How could you work around this jamming technology? But some of them had expertise in social science techniques, and so they turned their attention to things like how could the United States exploit Stalin's death when it inevitably happened? Um, how could the United States think about um, kind of gumming up the bureaucratic works in the Soviet Union. Basically, what, could, what kinds of things could the United States do uh, to change world opinion? Everything from dropping uh, pamphlets from weather balloons to uh, doing more radio broadcasts to, uh, again, just kind of uh, gumming up the works by um, spreading things that might or might not be true. 
Right. Um, yeah, there was a, uh, a program at the CIA that was dubbed the Mighty Whirlerser, which was, uh, you know, just churned out all sorts of fake news uh, and propaganda, black propaganda, gray propaganda, uh, in this uh, war of words with the uh, with the Soviets, let's talk about some of these programs. Were were they successful in uh, defeating the Soviet jamming program? To uh, the Soviets, I should explain, were trying to block broadcasts of the Voice of America into the Soviet Union. Were they were our scientists successful in defeating the Soviet jamming? Uh, yes and no. I mean, through, through building other kinds of towers and, and placing them. But I think most people who study this period think that the um, success or not of these programs is immeasurably hard to, to basically to, to evaluate. You know, how would you figure out whether uh, campaigns changed hearts or minds? They seem to have been most effective in some ways in appealing to um, non-communist on the left. So people who were former communists who um, had turned against Stalin, who wanted to lay out some kind of middle ground that wasn't communism, that wasn't necessarily capitalism. Uh, to, so many of these, many of the people involved in these projects were intellectuals and technocrats who were appealing to uh, kind of their peers uh, in places like Western Europe. Yeah, uh, I wanna get back to audiences that this was directed at in a moment. But let's talk about this other uh, scheme to float balloons over China with anti-communist uh, propaganda. That sounds like a bit of a harebrained scheme. Were scientists involved in that? Uh, they were. Uh, many theories of uh, communication, uh, some, some of the central theories of communication theory about reception and how ideas spread through a population actually came from these. You know, particularly um, in Asia, uh, the Americans faced a different problem than they faced in Europe. Fewer people had radios. Uh, their attempts to, uh, to work with private citizens to broadcast um, weren't working as well just because there were fewer people with receiving kits who could hear the broadcast. So uh, when the conflict with Korea started, uh, the United States was really struggling to try and figure out how would you reach various populations in Asia. And one possibility was to drop leaflets from the air. Do we have any idea how effective that was? I don't think we have any idea on effectiveness. We can say something about quantity, which was that hundreds of thousands of pamphlets were dropped uh, over various periods of time. So this, this was a large operation. Uh, whether or not it, it was effective, I think is an open question. As far as we know, they might've been used as toilet paper, uh, <laughs> uh, which you know was a recurring theme in a World War II movies, you know, of GIs taking German propaganda leaflets and using them for toilet paper, but moving along. You were also write in, the, in an excerpt in the Atlantic magazine, over time, the CIA and the State Department would find ways to incorporate messages about scientific progress more directly into their work. They did so particularly with programming aimed at a particular class of elite technocrats in developing nations. The very people that the National Security Council proposed to win over in the first place. So these messages were designed for people sort of on the fence in the what we used to call the third world or and in and in Europe or or what? Yes, a lot of the messages aimed at technocrats were specifically aimed at uh, people in what we then call the third world or developing areas or, or they might have called themselves in, in the non-aligned movement. 
um, you know, for many of these newly independent countries, uh, the question was, how do you establish economic independence? So how do you get a kind of economic growth that will allow your uh, residents and citizens to be really truly free? Um, and so the challenge is that these new leaders in these countries were looking both to the Soviet Union and the United States to say, what can we learn from their economic models? What policies and procedures do these different structures, one capitalist, one communist have to drive various kinds of progress? Um, and the Soviet Union was very effective at saying, hey, look what we did in Russia. Look what we did in these other um, Soviet territories to drive progress, to turn this from an industrial land to really a cutting edge technological system. Um, and they were saying that the most effective way to do that was through central planning and through various kinds of communism. Mm -hmm. So looking at that, the United States said, well, no, we have a better solution. It's liberal democracy, and we're going to show you how to do it through our version of science. Right. And, and the State Department, as you know, put out a glossy magazine called America, spelled with a K, uh, that was uh, directed at these elites and it touted American scientific progress. Again, the message was not too subtly, look at our science, we're really superior in this realm. But that sort of brings us up to the present time. There seems to be a very similar uh, kind of psychological warfare aspect to what's going on in competition around vaccines, for example. Um, uh, China in particular sort of waging the soft power war to say, uh, and Russia as well, saying, look, our system, state controlled capitalism is better than a sloppy Western democracies at getting things done. Does that play out in this uh, competition over vaccines? Is that a psychological warfare front? I don't know that I would go so far as to call it psychological warfare, but it certainly does feel like good old fashioned public diplomacy. Um, that as I'm speaking you, to you today, we've just heard an announcement that G7 is committing to distributing a billion doses of vaccine. Um, this seems to be a, a pretty clear message that uh, these countries are trying to show that democratic nations care about other countries and the rest of the world and are there to help. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that seems to be a, a, a big uh, public relations, to put it some other way, victory for the West so far. It looks promising to say, look, hey, you knock our democracies, but we're going to deliver vaccines and you guys can't. Um, and that seems to be an effective wedge issue uh, for the hearts and minds of Europeans and others who are uh, looking for help. Uh, and uh, if, if Washington comes out ahead in that battle, all, all the better. Do we see scientists playing a, a continuing role in sci psychological warfare in the way it was during the Cold War in the 1950s? It's not clear that we see that now. We certainly saw it during the Obama years. Uh, in the uh, decade after the uh, war, global war on terror, the Obama administration was really trying to use ideas about science and scientific freedom as really an olive branch to what the administration called the Muslim world, sending out uh, scientific envoys. Um, and later we saw this too with the Iran nuclear deal. There was a, uh, in the State Department's publicity associated with that deal, there was a lot of emphasis on kind of scientist to scientist diplomacy uh, between the State Department and uh, their, their counterparts, uh, between the Department of Energy and their counterparts in, in Iran. Um, Biden is kind of toying with that, thinking about how we can you know, reinvigorate science diplomacy after four years where I would say it was not a particularly high priority. 
Mm-hmm. In the scientific realm and covert action or intelligence gathering, the CIA would certainly see this as an opportunity to cultivate uh, Iranian scientists, uh, Chinese scientists, Russians, and so on, through these informal meetings or formal meetings, scientific conferences, and so on. That's always been a playing ground for espionage services uh, the world over. So you, we can expect uh, the CIA to, to, as well as Iranian intelligence, it's hard to see the Iranian intelligence officer uh, recruiting an American scientist. However, um, as we reported yesterday, uh, looking at uh, all the files the Chinese have stolen of federal personnel files, Equifax files, and so on, they have a lot of information that they can leverage. They, they know if a senior intelligence officer or a scientist connected to the defense industry uh, has money problems or other problems in which they can leverage into recruiting or coercing or blackmailing one of our scientists or officials into spying for them. That is absolutely true, but it is also true that as, as you well know, uh, a lot of what we think of as intelligence and scientific intelligence is actually open information. And it's the kind of information that is best gathered, um, ironically, through some of the values of science. Right, so if you are uh, encouraging scientists to go out on the international stage and mingle with each other, uh, these ideas that science has no borders, that's actually the, one of the best ways to gather information about say, what a country's research strengths are, who are the people in that country who might be more sympathetic to your own country's goals, who are your likely allies, where are their weak spots? So um, yes, when we, have, uh, when we set up opportunities for scientists to meet and mingle, we are creating opportunities for intelligence gathering, but we're also allowing kind of science to progress. And it's in scientific intelligence in particular, it's really hard to figure out where that line is between true secrets and just um, things that would be useful to know about mm -hmm. another country's scientific strengths. Mm-hmm, indeed. Um, and I think uh, the intelligence establishment can kind of get carried away about clandestine operations, covert action, and so on, uh, to the detriment of gathering open information, which is valuable, uh, very valuable. The Chinese have become their strategy of, of gathering massive amounts of open information and analyzing it back home has been very successful by, by most accounts. So, um, so one last thing I wanted to get back to, this whole controversy over the Wuhan lab leak and so on. Do you detect some kind of psychological warfare or uh, special interest activity, uh, political activity to, uh, to uh, put a blemish on ch uh, China in general and its scientific standards in particular in regard to whether the Wuhan lab was responsible for leaking the coronavirus? I think that those of us who write and talk about such things are struggling to find the words to describe uh, the political controversy that's happening in Wuhan. Because uh, on the one hand, we see some measures that look like misinformation and disinformation that we might classically think of as psychological warfare. For example, same, for example. Uh, you know, rumors spreading through social media that uh, their original attribution is very difficult to trace. Um, the, the powers of rumor, the power of repetition, the power of asking questions that aren't quite untrue, <laughs> uh, but imply answers that aren't really there. 
Um, but that language of psychological warfare generally, um, generally has been used to uh, apply to external enemies. And a lot of the language that we're seeing about uh, a possible lab leak in the United States very much seems aimed at a domestic audience. It's about uh, whipping up fear of China. It's about um, kind of bolstering support uh, for the former president's base. Um, it's doing something different. I think it would have repercussions on the international stage if it proved to be true, but I wanna reiterate that it's unlikely to be true. Uh, the, 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 the bigger point seems to be to generate doubt and to, to uh, you know, cultivate doubt in scientific institutions and public authorities more generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and American institutions as well. You probably saw the the viral uh, video of the woman talking about you know the vaccinations, you know, making turning people into magnets, and you know your, your car keys stick to your forehead, and, and so on. Do you think American scientists and Western scientists in general are doing? Uh, an adequate job of uh, contradicting these uh, bizarre uh, attacks on vaccinations? I think American scientists could do a better job about that. But on the one hand, it's not really their job to do it. I think one of the biggest changes that we haven't fully grappled with is the decline of science journalism in this country. Um, a decade ago, many, you know, most major papers still had um, kind of science divisions, the science reporters, science beats. Um, and there's less of that now. There are fewer skilled journalists and public communicators who know how to talk to the public in responsible ways about the kinds of uncertainty and doubt that are really built into science, even when it's happening the right way. Mm, yeah, and this is a global problem now with vaccination resistance. So Audra Wolf, it's just a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're, just do, you're doing some f fascinating work and uh, thank you much for coming on Spy Talk to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was a fascinating aspect of Cold War competition. But wait, do you hear what Jean's got? She's going to talk to a famous spy. Where is she? read the James Bond books when I was a kid. I have seen the James Bond movies and now I can say I've met the man. Who are you? So Jean, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm the original and I have, I can see from here a photo of Sean Connery where he signed it a, for me to James Bond from Sean Connery, the original. And I'm very upset about that because I'm the original. Are you a British secret intelligence agent? Well, I'm neither British and uh, a secret intelligence agent. I would tell you, but I'd have to kill you. So. Uh, I, I was going to say, what, what do you do? And is it really just an undercover ruse that you're putting out there? No, no. Actually, James Bond's a very common name. And I have had a much more prosaic career in industry and in economic development. So uh, Ian Fleming said that James Bond was the dullest name I ever heard. And that's why he gave it to the character. For you, has it been dull having this name? Well, actually, I kind of agree with him that James Bond is a pretty dull name. <laughs> Except for me, it's been fantastic. What an icebreaker, what a wonderful way to meet people, to make people happy. Um, you know, you can sort of, uh, you, you don't leave anyone unaffected. Now, of course, the problem is I actually don't remember names very well, and no one ever forgets my name. 
So that's a bit of a problem, as you can imagine. But um, what what are some of the benefits besides making people smile of having a name like James Bond? So let me tell you an anecdote. Uh, you know, um, in my beginning of my career, I after studying, getting a couple of degrees, I went off and I worked for an oil company in Paris. I was in Paris. Um, and uh, in those days, you know, when you work for an oil company, there were no things like annual performance evaluations and 360 reviews and everything we have now. And if they liked what you did, uh, they gave you an increase at the end of the year. If they didn't like what you did, they fired you. So the feedback was pretty direct. And after I'd been working there probably for about five years, my boss, who was called Monsieur Carrier, Mr. Carrier, and he used to refer to me as Bond not James Bond or Mr. Bond, but Bond. And he saw me in the corridor and he said, uh, uh, Bond, Bond, uh, yeah, I've been thinking. And you know, I, I, you're gonna have an interesting career. I, I'm convinced, I'm sure you'll have an interesting career. So I said, the first feedback I'd had in my, you know, in this job that I'd been in for four or five years, I said, I'm Monsieur Carrier, that's so kind. It's very kind of you, thank you, I'm very touched. He said, oh, no, 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 it's not that you're competent or anything, but with a name like James Bond, you're sure to have an interesting career. And, you know, he was dead right. It's been a very interesting career. Has it had some real benefits professionally? Well, I did have an office that was U12-007. So I got the 007 office um, in when I was um, running MEGA. MEGA is a piece of the World Bank, kind of a specialized boutique agency. And I had the uh, office 007 on the 12th floor. And when I'd have, would have clients come by, that always want to oppose with me next to the number, the big number that had James Bond, Chief Operating Officer, U12-007. <laughs> it was wonderful. My guess is that people have probably given you gifts over the years that relate to spying or James Bond or 007. Yeah, they, yes, obviously they do. It's kind of always a joke, kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. Of course, it's more a joke for them because the first time than for me when it's the 50th time. But, you know, it's done in good humor. And um, what I love is when I go into a cafe or go into some, wherever it may be, I pay with my credit card and they look at my credit card and they always, oh, James Bond, how is it? But what I love is when they pick up something from the books or the films like, ah, shaken, not stirred, huh? I say, ah, a man of culture, a man of culture. <laughs> oh, do you drink martinis, by the way? I, I, I do. Well, not anymore. Not as many as I used to, but I could. You know, James and, Bond Vespa martinis are a wondrous thing. It's a very good thing. And do, do you prefer them shaken, not stirred? Of course, of course. <laughs> Naturally. Are there other aspects of his persona that you kind of incorporated? You know, I'm quite unlike him because he's a kind of a charming thug. And he, I, I'm not as charming as him, and I'm definitely not a thug. But um, you know, his uh, like—he likes good cars, and I would love to have the money to be able to buy myself an Aston Martin. Unfortunately, I can't. Um, He—he's a womanizer. I don't think um, I'm a womanizer. My—you know—I've been happily married these 45 years, and I have uh, two daughters and four granddaughters, so I'm surrounded by women. And that's about as much uh, female adulation as, as I need. But uh, no, I think um, he's an interesting character. I mean, he was originally quite dark in the, in the Sean Connery books. And fortunately, the films have taken this and kind of spun this very glamorous, you know, womanizer, Brinko, completely politically incorrect today, but still a very interesting person. But in the books, he was a real fan. He's also a daredevil. Are you? Yes. 
Uh, well, I mean, I've gotten to, like, let me tell you, so when I was, uh, you know, I don't know if you know where Kazakhstan is, but I'm sure your people, the people who listen to this podcast I must, do. because they, and, and so when the, the Soviet Union collapsed, they, they sent teams out from the World Bank to join up to see if we could get the different members, Russia and the other stands, the other republics, to join the World Bank, which was a development agency based here in Washington. And so they looked around and they said, we need somebody who understands oil. Bond has spent 10 years in an oil company. He'll go and we'll send him to Kazakhstan, which had the biggest oil field, Tengiz, in the world. Um, so they sent me off there with a team, people from the IMF and the World Bank and myself. And uh, we arrived in, in Almaty, we call Almat at the time. There was no border. We got off a plane from, from Moscow. Uh, you, there was no taxis. They didn't have taxis because taxis are both one. So difficult getting up to the Dostik Hotel. And then I sat for about, um, I guess, a week trying to get a meeting with the Minister of Finance, trying to get a meeting and talking to the secretary. But then I had an interpreter. I need to see it. I, you know, um, I need, we're from the World Bank, really important. Oh, he saw Bank of America yesterday. No, this is World Bank. Eventually, after a week, I get a meeting. and I go in and I've got a full speech prepared for him. And I've got my interpreter and I start off and I say, uh, dear Mr. Minister, thank you very much for seeing me. Uh, my name is James Bond and I'm uh, with the World Bank in Washington. The World Bank is a global cooperative owned by 196 countries worldwide. And I go through all of this and I kind of make my spiel. I'm in my dark blue suits and so on. And then Lilia Petrovna, the interpreter, picks up and she says, uh, like, I, you know, I don't speak Russian, but I could hear Shmerzny Bank, which was World Bank in Russian. I don't know what it's going. And this guy is sitting, the Minister of Finance, he's kind of like a Russian statue out of granite, he, you know, with medals on his chest and very square and behind his big desk, which is on a platform. So we're tiny, you know, much below it. And after listening to her spiel in Russian, he looks at me and he says, in English, Ah, if they're sending us James Bond from Washington, Kazakhstan must be in real trouble, he said. <laughs> and I realized I'd come across the usual problem is that no one takes me seriously <laughs> they like James Bond. But, you know, they did become members shortly after that, so it must have had some kind of an effect on him. Does it ever become irritating? Well, uh, sometimes when people belabor the point, as though it's the first time, when people know that I'm, I've probably heard it before and they do it with a bit of tongue in cheek, but sometimes people will do it like it's the first time anyone's ever done it to me. And of course it isn't. It's probably not even the first time that particular day. So I'm quite used to it. But as I said, I love the people who throw in an Aston Martin or a, a Shaker Not Stirred or uh, whatever it might be. Are there Penny. Miss Moneypenny, you know, a friend of mine invited me to lunch in France and uh, he, he did the lunch because he had the lunch because he had invited Dr. No. And so James Bond and Dr. No. We had this great lunch and had, a, I don't know how many bottles of wine. He was actually a, a medical doctor from Paris. He was of Vietnamese origin. So he was spelled G-N-O, but it's pronounced Dr. No. So I had that. And then I also once was trying to interview a guy that we wanted to hire as a consultant on something very very arcane about financial markets or something. And all of the members from the hotel, this is the Amitié Hotel in Brussels for those, L'Hôtel de l'Amitié in Brussels for those who know it. And all of the staff kept kind of hovering around us, couldn't understand. And then I realized that actually my you know, potential consultant's name was Goldfinger. And they were all wanting to see James Bond having breakfast with Goldfinger. <laughs> 
are there certain perks to it? Is it easier to get a restaurant reservation or? None. Well, let me tell you a restaurant. So you go to the restaurant, uh, you go up and you say, hi, um, I have a reservation for eight for two. And they say, yes, so what is the name please? And they look at the list and I say, James Bond. I said, oh, we thought you were a joke. They said, and my wife said, they were right. <laughs> so then they have to scramble because they didn't reserve me a table. And actually when I was at university, the, um, I can remember that they, you'd have to sign up for these, you know, uh, technical workshops and so on. And of course you'd put your name down which slot you wanted and then they would go through and they'd take out all the Count Draculas and Mickey Mouses and things like that. So I always got scrubbed because <laughs> I was in the same category as Count Dracula and Mickey Mouse and they just took me off the list. Do you have a favorite book or a favorite amongst the movies? I, you know, um, I actually like the Sean Connery ones a lot. I thought From Russia with Love had the right mix, but I must say some of the more recent Daniel Craig movies have been pretty good too. But he is a but politically incorrect. I think it's gotten a little oh, bit Oh, incredibly better. incorrect yeah, when no, you look yeah. back at the Sean Connery movies. At the old ones, but I think it's got much better now. They kind of women have actual real roles. They're not just bimbos and sort of there for the eye candy as it were, which is it's a little bit off-putting now when you go back and watch some of those movies. So the first book came out in 1953. I have not I, been, I've not been indelicate enough to ask when you were born. I predate the book. I predate okay, so your literature. parents had absolutely no idea that no, they were no. naming you after the most famous fictional spy in history. Well, he wasn't then. And you can imagine my teenage years when you're all very timid and you're growing up and all of a sudden James Bond is a thing, you know, so it made my teenage years very interesting. Did your parents ever have any remorse for having given you this name? None. And, you know, my son, uh, who has three little girls, uh, absolutely wanted to call one of them James Bond. And he obviously has three. So the third is called Juliet James Bond. JJ, Juliet James Bond. So the name James Bond has now not only been retained in the family, but has actually switched genders, which I think is very appropriate. <laughs> So overall, would you say it's been a blessing or a curse? I definitely a blessing. My parents didn't leave me much, but they left me that, and I get as much out of it as I can. By the way, he says that one of the toughest things about having the name James Bond is trying to claim an email account. A lot of people want to use the name, even if it is not the name on their birth certificate. He also says it's humbling to do an online search. He shows up on about page 15 of the Google search results. Could be worse. Imagine if your name was Lex Luthor. Nope, wouldn't want that one. Thank you very much. I do have a name, though, and it's Jean Meserve. And I'd like to say thank you to all of us for joining us and to remind you to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Spy Talk podcast. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.